Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. My guest today is Erica Guthouse. Erica has been supporting families in their childbearing years since 2008 and has been part of the professional birth community since 2014. She is a highly skilled communicator, educator, and encourager and specializes in transformative growth, empowerment, and wisdom keeping. As the conjurer of birth reclamation at Rooted, Erica is bringing her skill set to life by supporting Red Birth Green birth workers and families in claiming compassionate, inclusive, and respectful care for the entire family dynamic during the childbearing year. Born and raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan, she currently lives in Lansing with her husband, four kids, and six rescue pets. Please join me in welcoming Erica. Hi, Erica. How are you doing? I'm great, Leah. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for making time. I so appreciate this. And I think this is really an interesting conversation. And I'm so glad that our paths crossed. There I was at the uh, Black Arts Festival and you were manning a booth. And I thought, I have been looking for you. (laughs) I know the timing was perfect. I call it serendipity, right? It was very serendipitous that we met on that day. And yeah, I'm, I think this is going to be a great conversation and I'm really looking forward to digging in with you. Well, let's just start right out. And why don't you tell me a little bit about you and Rooted and how you came to that? Yeah, for sure. So first and foremost, I'm a mom. I've got four kids that range in age from nine to 15 right now. So I've been in the parenting game for a while. We take a really different approach to the way that we engage with our kids and like work towards things very collectively as a family. So that's always given me a unique perspective when it comes to working with other families. And I am a doula and I refer to myself as a family transition specialist. So I like to step in not just at times of birth, but there are so many transitions that can happen for families as they continue to go through like the continuum of raising children that require the same type of support that you would need from a doula. And so I'm your girl for that. And I like to step in in that capacity. Right now, I am the conjurer of birth reclamation for Rooted and the director of Red Birth Green, which is a division of Rooted. Uh, Red Birth Green holds on to all things related to birth and parenting and families. And so that looks like a whole host of things at any given time. We have a wonderful team of doulas that are able to support in the community for birthing families. We are partners in the Reproductive Health Fund with the YWCA and can provide both birth and postpartum support for that. And then we also are in the process of opening an easy access clinic that will be a perinatal home for expectant families in the community as well. So lots of exciting things, lots of cool ways to engage. And yeah, that's a little bit about me in a nutshell. Well, I have two questions for you. One is, can you define what a doula is in case listeners don't know? And the other, can you talk a little bit about the focus of Rooted as far as the population that you hope to serve? Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to work backwards on your question. So the emphasis for Rooted is that we are bringing access to cultural healing opportunities 
for BIPOC folks in the community. So we always say anyone is welcome at our table, right, at our events within our village. But the experiences that we create always center and uplift the BIPOC community. And so that just creates a different narrative than what people are used to experiencing that are usually very white centered and BIPOC folks need to be the ones that kind of fall to the wayside. And we like to flip that on its head and go the opposite direction. So, yes. So I was just going to stop you because BIPOC was a new term for me. So maybe you can just define that too. Yes, I I forget that like all of these things that are my day to day all the time are still new and emerging terms for people. So I love to be able to educate. Absolutely. So BIPOC is Black Indigenous Person of Color. So I also will do a quick summary and refer to it as Black and Brown folks. A lot of times, if you've got extra melanin in your skin in any capacity, that's who I'm talking about in this situation. Um, So yes, does that help? to break that down a little bit. That's perfect. Thank you. I had to Google it one time when I was in a meeting. So I just want to make sure everybody knows what that means. Yes. Yes. We need to be on the same page. Common language, right? Is very important. So yes. So that's BIPOC. And then doula, like this is always a big thing, right? Because doulas historically, if it comes from Greek origin is where the word doula comes from. Okay. What we had been told in training for years and years is that doula literally translated in Greek means a woman who serves. And that is true. But what I have actually come to learn in this past year is that in Greek, like modern Greek, doula is actually a derogatory term and it's more like an enslaved person. And so I've been working really hard to like unpack that for myself and like, how do we navigate this word? But essentially, we're going to use doula again for common language because it's the thing that most people hear most often. Doulas are there for non-clinical physical and emotional support for people experiencing pregnancy, postpartum primarily, but also loss. And that can be unexpected loss or chosen loss like an abortion. And there's also people who support like end of life as well from the lens of a doula. And so it is a full spectrum, right? Like from all aspects of life, all the way through death, which is really beautiful. And it is, it's about coming in and being able to give um, that support and really look at things about centering the person who's going through the experience, right? Without any other agenda, we're literally there for them and their needs and their wishes and desires and whatever we can do to facilitate those to the best of our abilities, then that's what we do. Sounds like everybody should have a doula. (laughs) It's usually the response. It's like, I need a doula. Like, can I have a nap doula? Can I have a laundry doula? Like there are a lot of things, right? There's a lot of overlap there for sure. But yes, I actually think that everybody should have a life doula (laughs) in some capacity. Right, right. Well, in talking about birthing and that including prenatal care, the actual birth event and postpartum, when you and I had talked before, you described a need to restore humanity to the space. And in particular, what what concerns do you have about the experiences of Black and Brown women that are in medical settings? And, and are we getting something wrong? So I try to shy away from thinking about things in terms of right and wrong, right? Because when we, those are, those are opposites, they're dualities, they're polarizing, And what we know is that the multitude of life actually happens in the space in between, right? In between right and wrong. Like it's very, I think it's hard. There are certain situations where you can define it that way. But I think anytime you involve humans, 
right, in our nature and the nuance that comes with that is much more difficult than to just say this is the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it. So that's a little aside. But I think I think there are I think the reality is that the systems that we have in play right now are working exactly as they're designed to. Now, whether or not those serve people to the best of their ability, that's another situation. I personally don't believe that they do. So I think that we could, when it comes to restoring humanity to the space, it's a nice way of saying, how can we actually see people for the individuals that they are instead of just a number in a system or a number in a chart? And how can we step away from, or how can we take a blanket of knowledge, right? Like we're very knowledge rich society on both sides of the table at this point, right? Consumers are becoming more and more aware of things that they never did because we have wonderful tools in our pocket, right? In our phones all the time. We can always Google a question, which is a double-edged sword. But I think because of that, the conversation has changed, right? Like not any one player has all of the answers anymore. People do, regular people do have access to really valuable information that can broaden or enrich a conversation with a care provider and can really change things, but the care provider has to be open to that. And so if we're talking about things that I think are going wrong right now, it's still being stuck in a mindset that is so defined by I went to school for this, so I know better than you versus being able to see, oh, this is a person who actually is an expert in themselves, right? Because they live in their skin day in, day out. And or this person is an expert in their child because they're with their child for, you know, thousands of hours over the course of a lifetime. And I see them maybe once or twice a year. It's very different, just a different experience and being able to recognize the value that can come out of really entering into relationship and, and approaching things a bit different. And you mentioned a couple other things that I thought were really meaningful. And one was being careful about making assumptions about mm. what you don't know. And, and I think that kind of can trickle into judgment for sure. And then you also talked about something like you said, people over policy and that we should question that. So talk a little bit about those things. Sure. So people over policy, that could probably be my tagline in life, I think at this point, because it, it ties into what I was just saying, right? That if we really see people for who they are and where they are, we see the whole of their existence. And there's a lot of nuance to humans, right? Like all of us have a lot of complexities and a lot of layers. Blanket policies don't ever touch on that. Blanket policies almost always, uh, again, I don't like to go into dualities and say always, this is always the case, but I would say almost always serve the entity who is the policy holder versus the person who it's meant to protect or serve, right? So when we can center the human experience Experience in a situation and then say, oh, this policy actually doesn't uphold that at all. Maybe we need to change the policy because it's not working for the people that it's supposed to take care of. Like that's usually where my eyes turn to. You sound like a questioner. I am a questioner. Yes. <laughs> Question everything. I don't believe in arbitrary hoop jumping. That's like, <laughs> that's my general approach to life. I'm teaching kids that I would love to like create an entire generation that also questions everything. That's how we decolonize 
spaces is to simply start by asking why or to remain curious. And I think it's challenging because kids, we snuff it out at a very young age, right? It starts at like 18 months to those first words of why, right? It can be super annoying as a parent when you have a small human that is constantly asking why. And so we shut that down, but I like to elevate it because it's a really useful skill, especially if you're someone who like feels more, hears more, sees more, right? A little bit wants to step into spaces and really be a change maker asking why and questioning everything. Like that's the most useful tool that we can all have. And what about making assumptions about people? Do you think that the system kind of perpetuates that or is that just something that humans do? Mm, I think it's both. I think it's a both and situation. Yes, totally. Totally wanted to fall out of my mouth when you were saying, do you think it's something the system does? Yes, totally. The system does this. I honestly, I also don't believe that it's necessarily the system's fault. I think it's a byproduct of our society as a whole, which is a whole separate conversation. It's easier. Let's just be honest and call it what it is. It's easier to make an assumption about a situation than it is to dig in and have the whole conversation and to ask questions, right? Way, way easier. Or it's way easier to, if you don't like, I don't want to assume, okay, cool. You also create narratives. We all do it. We create narratives for somebody we see walking across the street, right? Easier to create a narrative instead of going into a relationship with somebody, building trust with somebody, right? So it's just, it is what it is. It's one of those situations. Like, I think, I don't know that I'll see enough change in my lifetime even to say, oh, we've moved away from that, right? But it is also real simple to just start with that one thing, which is stop making assumptions about people, period. And I think in you, every used, situation. you used some really clever, easy language, which was tell me more about you or tell me more about your life and this idea of remaining curious. And I think when you're curious, it lets you step out of judgment because you're like, huh, I, I don't understand that or I'm interested. Just tell me more. Yes, definitely. That's a big part of it, right? Like, again, it's easier to make the assumption and it's easier to just kind of brush it aside and not build, go like go into the trust building activities. I think for a lot of people, it's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable to remain curious because it's much easier to just go about our way. And I keep using that word easy. Like we take the, you know, we, what's the commercial? We want the easy button, right? We just want to hit the easy button. What's the fastest way for me to get this done? But when we're talking about people and interacting with people, nothing is easy ever. I would invite everyone to take an opportunity. And like, and when you come up against a challenging situation, like, am I going to a place of being defensive because I just don't understand or am I going to a place of being defensive because this actually feels wrong? Like, again, ask why. Question yourself about, ask, you know, in that same way. I just, it's interesting to me that it feels so hard to go into those spaces and, and just say, tell me more, right? No, and I think a lot of, I don't mean to speak for all physicians, but I've done this work for a long time. So I kind of get the space, but I think for a lot of people, it's maybe twofold. One is it takes time to do that. And sometimes I don't really want to know, you know, I, it's too hard. It, the opposite of easy. It's too hard because if you say something that you share with me, that is hard or, you know, laden with emotion, and I don't know what to do with that. 
it's just, it's just easier to skip it. And, but, but you miss the richness. And I think the magic of what I think the magic of medicine is and the art of medicine is the human connection. Yes. It's a missed opportunity for human connection. Right. And I think about how often we all go through our day missing those opportunities, simple interactions, you know, when you're getting gas or buying groceries, even like take it out of, you know, the clinical setting, we have so many missed opportunities for connection because we go to the place of, you know, judgment or creating a different narrative simply because we made an assumption, right? Let's circle it all back where instead we, if we shift the focus, right, let's shift our lens from, oh, I'm making assumptions to, hmm, I want to be curious about this because I don't want to miss an opportunity for connection. How can I help? How can I be supportive? How can I have a positive impact on this person's existence? We can't fix everything, right? That's impossible. That's way, way too high of a bar. But we can create opportunities for connection that maybe start a ripple effect in somebody else's life. And I do think that there is some self-serving end of that in that when you do that and it's real, it feels really good. It feels on, so good. On both yes. ends, it's like, oh, this is so cool that I understand this or I get to share this with you. I mean, I think, honestly, it's why I love doing this podcast. It's like, it's so much fun to connect with people that I never would have otherwise. So, you know, it feeds my soul. And and I think those really rich conversations do. Let me ask you a little bit. I kind of want to bring it back to to some of the work that you do at Rooted. and that BIPOC perspective. And let's walk through what the experience of a Black woman might be in the healthcare setting who's pregnant. Let's say she's, let's make her 22, and she is Black, and she's in, say, our community, Kalamazoo. So we're a kind of an urban community, not huge, have a decent healthcare system. What's that like for her from kind of from the start? Sure. So I'm going to, I'm going to give a really unique perspective here because I was that, right? So I'm biracial, full transparency, but I present with brown skin. And so I, and I was young, I was a young mom. I was going through pregnancy when I was 23 for the first time and within the Kalamazoo community. And so I can tell you what my experience was like. And I can also tell you that, so that was almost, that was 16 years ago that I was going through that experience. And I can tell you based on the work that I currently do and the conversations I have on a daily basis, not much has shifted. And if it has shifted, it's actually shifted in a negative direction, not positive. So there's a blanket for you. I can tell you that there are assumptions made, especially if you are a young mom, about your competency and your knowledge level from the get-go. At the time, I had commercial insurance. In subsequent pregnancies, I was a Medicaid uh, recipient. And so I can tell you the nuance there. That's an initial judgment that is made from the beginning, when you walk in and you have that very first encounter at reception, you will always receive two different responses, two different welcomes when you are a Medicaid mom versus a commercial insurance mom. That's just facts. You will also have the same experience when you actually go into birth in the hospital or if you need emergent care at any time during your pregnancy. Those are two different experiences always. And take that for what it's worth. Like that's also, that's an easy change within the system, right? It right is right there. So, you know, if your listeners are like, oh man, what can I do? Like that right there is to, to figure out how to take out the difference in those responses based on insurance. 
it feels very much like almost like a cattle call, right? Like very, just like, okay, very cookie cutter experience. It does feel often like there's a sense of judgment, like there's a weight to it. There's usually a lot more questions about your weight, about your blood pressure, if there are any nuances there. Say more. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how to unpack that a bit more. There are assumptions made about black and brown women and their weight coming into the medical system, period, right? Like, let alone outside of pregnancy. But there, I specifically remember, and I weighed way less then than I do now, but I specifically remember the nurse. I hadn't even seen the doctor yet, but the nurse, my very first weigh in at that first visit at like nine weeks or whatever. Like, oh, you want to make sure that you really watch what you eat during this pregnancy so that you don't gain too much. Like, that's that's the first thing. She doesn't know my history. She doesn't know if I have a history of an eating disorder. She like she knows nothing about me, but that's the first thing that you want to focus on is what I am or what I'm not eating. You have no idea, right? We have not, we have no relationship for that conversation. And I can say too that in other provider offices, it's the same thing. Like they always want to talk about make sure you watch what you eat. You don't want to gain too much. Like And what we know is that it's actually really hard to gain or not gain. Like if you're having, experiencing a healthy pregnancy, like you don't actually want to put a lot of control over that situation. You want to ride the wave a little bit because a lot of times it's going to meet needs of your baby. It's in utero still. And so we want to be really careful about the advice that we're dishing out on that. But anyways, that's a digression. So again, there's that judgment piece, right? Like, oh, you're making assumptions about who I am and what I how I go about my life, what I consume. If you ever go to a visit, even like if you're in a relationship, right? Married or, you know, partner, whatever. If you go to a visit and you're by yourself, like it's automatically assumed that you don't have a partner almost always. And I, that still is fascinating to me, especially when we're talking about appointments that happened in the middle of the day, like the expectation that a partner or a spouse can just be there, right? Not everybody, that's a luxury to be able to take off in the middle of the day and attend an appointment like that. So just, it's little things. Microaggressions is what it is more than anything. And they're really hard to pinpoint, I think. I know based on conversations that I've had with clients in the community right now, there is a feeling often that like these people do not care about me. That's their phrase, not mine that I'm using. Like these people do not care about me. They do not care about my baby. Like I need help. And which for me in the position that I'm in right now is honestly, it's scary. It's scary to hear them say that because how do you convince them otherwise? Like you, you don't, how do I convince these people that they are okay? I can't, I can't do that. I can't undo what's been done. Right. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, of course, on the on the the other side, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm like working so hard and I'm seeing all these patients and I care about my patients deeply. How could it be that they don't see that? Where's the disconnect? I think some of the disconnect is in like presentation of information and education, right? So again, it goes back to that cookie cutter approach where it's like, I know, like, from your side of the table, right, Leah, like from the provider side, there's, you have so many patients in the course of a day and you're literally. That's a problem right there. (laughs) It's a huge problem right there. And you're getting like 
just little bits and pieces, right? Like the nurse comes in, medical assistant comes in, gets a little bit of current health history and then passes the buck. Like, here you go. It's off to the next one, right? Let me flip that flag so that I, you know, this is where you need to go. And patients feel that they feel that they feel the rush. They feel the lack of depth, the lack of warmth. They feel, especially pregnant people, like all of those senses are heightened, right? It's that's evolution because it's about protecting yourself and now protecting another human that you're growing within yourself. And so your senses are heightened. And so they pick up on all of those things. They feel them and they feel them deeply. And even if they're, this is important to me, even if they're not able to articulate something specifically about what they felt, heard, experienced, any of that, we believe them. We believe their experience. We believe them saying, I don't feel safe here. Okay, then let's help you find someplace where you do feel safe, right? We believe them because I, I don't know. I only know too so much of their history when I get them, right? But what I do know is that if somebody's telling me they don't feel safe, that's a problem because they're not going to go on to have a successful or healthy pregnancy if they continue, if their stress levels are so high because they don't feel safe, they don't feel seen, they don't feel heard. Those are big ones. How can we help people feel seen, heard, valued? Like those are like basic core human rights. And unfortunately, care providers miss the mark on that a lot because it's just, I got to get through this one so I can get on to the next one, right? Ah, if I take extra time here, that's going to throw my whole schedule off, right? Also, we've all been the person sitting waiting on a provider, right? 90 minutes, two hours goes by. Oh my gosh, where's this person at? And then there's this whole, it's hard to make an emotional connection when the patient is frustrated because they've been waiting, but we also don't know what the provider's just been dealing with, right? Maybe they were extending extra support to somebody who was also in need. It's hard. I don't know that there's any good answers other than we need more providers we need who then have smaller caseloads that they're responsible for, you know, um, caseloads, patient loads. We're all speaking different languages here, but it's just hard. This, and again, though, it goes back to the system. The system is working exactly as it's designed to. Like people want to point to the system is broken. The system is not broken at all in any way, shape, or form. This is the system that was has been in place for a long, long time. And if we choose to remain within that system, this is what we navigate, right? Th this is it. From my perspective, the only like really, really impactful change right now can happen in one of two ways. One you can throw it all out and start again. That would be my preference, <laughs> but it's also, that's an impossible ask. Or two, we start to create new systems alongside and outside of the one that we have to work with so that people have options that might work better for them. Well, and I'm wondering too, and, and you can speak to this better than I can for sure, what what's it the experience like when the staff is all white mm. and and does that does that make a difference when there are people that don't look like you oh it makes a huge difference 100% i can speak to this again personally not necessarily in this community but in another community that i lived in that was very very homogenous in nature i was pregnant at the time that we moved there i had like two visits with my new ob provider in that community fired him and birthed at home because I was like, I can't birth with this person at the hospital. It was an all white staff, both all providers, all medical assistants. I never saw anybody that looked like me. And I, I can't, again, this was many years ago at this point, but I want to believe that a lot of it was a lot of my 
not feeling safe and not feeling comfortable in the hands of these providers was because there wasn't anybody that looked like me there. Not even just with the providers and the staff, but also other patients. <laughs> there was nobody around that was my people. That's, it's, I don't know, I would say uncomfortable, but that feels too simple even. Like, I think it's, again, the spidey senses and like that heightened sense of awareness where you're like, why am I here by myself, right? There's power in numbers. And if you don't see numbers around you of people that look like you, you feel like you have no power. That's a frightening place to be in, especially if you're carrying a child. And I think that speaks to belonging, which we all want. Sure. You know, I in a sense of community. Right. That I belong here. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering a little bit on the, again, on the opposite side, I'm wondering if the response might be, I don't see color. I treat all my patients the same. And, and so how can that, how can I be racist? How can I be, you know, insensitive when I treat everyone the same? What about that? So that in and of itself is racist. Okay. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Hard hard, learning opportunity. Hard hard lesson. lesson. Such a hard lesson. Not seeing color is inherently racist, period. So if you learn nothing else today, learn that. So being someone who says that they don't see color, that they treat everyone the same, I believe is not possible. I I really, I don't believe it's possible, right? It goes back to what we talked about with making assumptions about people. (laughs) We don't, we, it's impossible to treat every single person, every single circumstance and situation exactly the same. Why? Because humans are complex individuals. Life is complex by nature, like an onion, right? There's so many layers of, to just keep peeling back and peeling back and peeling back, which means you can't treat the outside of that onion the same as when you get to the center. Like it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It also loops into what we've talked about with just having a cookie cutter blanket approach for the way that we engage with people. That's a policy over people situation, right? And that doesn't work. That's not in the best interest of the person on the receiving end. I almost think about it in another context that I think feels less defensive perhaps for people is if we look at children with learning differences. Mm -hmm. And if we say, I treat all children the same, kind of regardless of their abilities, that would make no sense. Correct. I mean, and and folks in, for example, the autism community would say, if you've seen a child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. That's exactly and that, right. you know, yeah. to say, well, they're they're just the same, so you don't need anything different, special, you know, to make what you need. I mean, we have to tailor to our our patient our patient needs, and that it sounds like means seeing color seeing sexual orientation, seeing ethnicity, seeing language differences, that it's important to see it and respect it, not be afraid of it. And that yeah. one's, that's hard because if you're different, that may be scary. It's other, I don't understand it. So that makes me fearful that I think, I think our country is going through a lot of that. You know, Brene Brown would use the term armoring up when you're scared, you put your armor up and that doesn't make you accessible. But in this healthcare setting, you you use the word that was in my head, which was missing the mark. We misconnect because we're trying hard not to 
you know, for good reason. I mean, we're not doing that with malintent. You know, I think I'm being a good person by, you know, saying or doing these things. And I didn't know. I didn't know. So I think hearing the voices is the the first part. And I think we're hearing that a lot, which may feel overwhelming. Like, how can I possibly make this better? But in listening to some of the other things, I was thinking, you know, one thing that we should be doing is with intention changing our staffing. You know, how do we how do we encourage children of color to go into the medical field and mentor and nurture them along and, you know, lift them up and maybe offer their them different accessibility because it hasn't always been a welcoming place. Well, that too, yes. It's really hard to want to go into something as a profession if you don't have positive experiences there, right? If it feels scary. And the same could be true, you know, for law enforcement and for other areas as well. Like if all you have is negative experiences, why would you want to do that? It's really hard to be like, oh, I'm the person who's going to change this, right? That's a huge, huge load to carry. Why would anybody say yes to that? Like that takes a really special person. We need like thousands of special individuals right now who are saying, I'm willing to take the challenge. I just had this conversation with a colleague related to out of hospital birth and midwifery and how we need people from this next generation to choose that as their profession from a diverse spectrum of folks, right? Because out of hospital birth and midwifery is also inherently white and privileged and feels not accessible to many, many black and brown folks. The way that we change that is by having more black and brown providers, but that is hard. It's much easier said than done. So like, how do we change that? And it is, it's going into that next layer, which is like the next generation and saying, listen, here are all of these options that you may not have considered before that are very viable for you. And like, for me, it's about community impact. Go to school for this. so You can come back and change your community. Right. And I happen to be in a position where I get to have those conversations with young people. And so I love that. But as a society, I feel like we could have such profound impact on the systems if we're all saying that, look, look at these things that are not working. I can't do this. I can, I'm going to try and lay all the foundation for you. I'm going to do as much work as I can to prime the pump for when you're ready to step into this role. But we need you, right? Your community needs you. And I don't know that we do enough with young people to really drive that point home that there is such beauty and reward in figuring out your place within your community and how you can help your community to level up collectively. Absolutely. I, I, a couple of people come to mind, of course, is Barack Obama. I mean, talk about stepping into a hostile, I mean, anybody who goes into politics. Oh my gosh, yes. You know, and to have to be, you know, the first black man who becomes president and then is questioned about, are you really an American? You know, I, you know, so there's that. And then I was also thinking about, you know, I'm watching the Olympics and I am struck by that there are a lot of different people of color on many of the teams, which is different. It has changed over time. Oh, so, so to much. see, you know, a Simone Biles who, you know, is, you know, she's the penultimate performer who also has the grace to say, I don't feel great. I'm going to step aside and let my other team shine until I'm in an okay place because it's not safe for me and it's not good for them. And that's yep. not being so powerful. That's not being a wimp. <laughs> which I think, you know, there's a lot of backlash, you know, like just buck up, you know, but 
how wonderful that she did that. What horrible thing would have been had she had some accident in air because she pushed herself, you know, no pain, no gain. I mean, that's crazy. Absolutely. But to see, to see all these women and then to see, of course, their commercials, I get that, but you know, all these children, whether they're, you know, from the Hmong community, like Suni Lee or the black community and to say, that's possible for me. Yes. Yes. If you don't see it, you don't know. Right. Like I think about my pediatrician's office when I was, you know, a small human and my pediatrician's office was wonderful. And every provider there was white, every single one. Right. And I think I was probably in a fortunate situation because at my office, there also happened to be a couple of female providers, like back in the eighties, that was also a rare thing, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I and, can tell you that for sure. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I think that's case in point, how things can change. When I first started, when I was a resident, there was one female OB in town, one, and now that's not the case. So, yeah. you know, that has changed the gender in many areas of medicine and pediatrics, if you look at the younger pediatrician population, it's predominantly the majority is are women. Yeah. So how do you then do the next iteration of that, which is, okay, let's, let's, you know, blend this up. How do yeah. we get, how do we get this to be a more um, heterogeneous group? Yes. I think we're doing it right now. So one, by having conversations just like this, I think that's the start, right? And I also think it's it's modeling what we want to see, right? So I think about that shift that you just indicated of, you know, now things are predominantly female. So all of the females that are now practicing were coming on the heels of like women's rights, women's power, like big feminist energy movement. Right. And so that's what they witnessed. And they're like, I can have that too. And so they did it. Right. So now the movement that's happening, right. That we've been going through for like the last year, more than that, but really, really elevated to the front and center is about racial reconciliation and diversity in all circumstances and really leaning into those things. And so I have to believe Maybe it's just like my deep humanist hope self that like, this is, this is it. We're doing it right. All of these young people are seeing what a movement can do and how things can shift and that you don't necessarily see the change immediately, right? It's incremental over time. And so I, be, I my hope is that by continuing to have these conversations and not shying away from talking about the hard things and doing the deep learning and changing narratives that all of these young people are witnessing that right now and saying, I can also have that, right? There is a place for me at that table as well. I may be the first one ever in my family to pursue this. I may be the first person in my neighborhood to pursue something like this, but that's what I want and I'm going to do it, right? And I feel like the larger extension of that even is then as a community, we have a right and a responsibility and an obligation almost to say this child is saying this is what they want. We're going to pour resources into them and make sure that they have access and that we remove barriers wherever we can, right? Again, there's a lot of layers. Like it's no like direct pathway. This is how we get there. But I think that we're on the right path right now. Well, so let's bring that back down into, you know, kind of the, the real everyday. In my, say I take this back to my office and say my office is not very diverse but I serve a diverse population. 
speak different languages, come from different neighborhoods, some Medicaid, some commercial, some self-pay, you know, some rural, some urban. So what do I, where do I start? Where do I start? And if I'm an OB, where do I start today? So if you could just fix this, this would be great. Yeah, yes. (laughs) Not not a hard question. I know it wasn't on the list of questions I gave you either. No pressure. That's okay. What dropped in immediately was asking one simple question. How are you today? Like, how are you today? And, And having the presence of mind and the awareness to recognize if someone is being transparent with you about how they are or if they're doing Midwest nice and saying, I'm fine, everything's fine, right? We've been through an unbelievable amount of collective stress in the last year, right? So many people are showing up and like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm good. You are not good. (laughs) Not a single one of us is good right now. Let's just be honest. And so to be able to hold space for just a moment by saying like, how are you today? Right? Like, how has your day been prior to sitting in this seat right now? It's, it's the element of slowing things down. Like we talked about restoring humanity to the space, right? But it's also about slowing things down. And there are really beautiful things can happen when you're the provider in that situation who does that. You might be the only opportunities that person has to sit down all day long, right? So if it's a pediatrician, right? You've got a mom in the office. She's got her hands full. Maybe she's there with multiple kids. But to be able to slow things down and see her for just that moment, you might be the only other adult that she has interaction with that day. It can be really meaningful and that can start to change the narrative that she's like, oh man, the last time I was there, it was actually really good because they actually saw me, right? Not just my kids, they saw me. And then she's going to want to come back. So she might choose to make an appointment at the office instead of going to the ER for care. Like it's little changes, again, incremental changes. It's not any one thing. But just slowing things down and like really just sitting with people in their mess, in their humanity can make a really profound difference. I had this conversation with a mom who had a child with significant um, medical complications. And one of the things she said is, just sit down. You sitting down, even if you don't sit down for very long, you sitting down implies that you have time to listen. Absolutely. I love that. And that I'm listening to this. I'm like, these are not like, you know, rocket science. These are not expensive things. These are simple human connections that make a difference. And I'm wondering, too, if the I do think by using some screening tools, that's helped me because I would make the assumption if I said to you, how are you? And of course, you'd say, I'm fine. And then I hand you the Edinburgh screen and it's really elevated. And I'm like, you know what, this looks like you're really not. So I think that is a tool to begin to sort of ask those hard questions, but it also tells you I'm interested in what you're telling me. So I think inquire about somebody's day, right? You're like, like, so what have you been up to today? How's your day been so far? Right? Like anymore, which this is sad. I just full on. It's sad that like that makes people pause. Like they're asking, they're asking, like they genuinely want to know, right? It's, And sometimes I think that's why it's even pushing past, like, how are you? Because that's a fast interaction. That's an in and out. It's real easy to just say like, oh yeah, I'm good. And keep it moving. It doesn't, it's not an invitation for conversation, but what have you been up to so far? How's your day going so far? Right. What do you guys have? Do you have plans for the weekend? Like what's going on? Like, let's, let's generate conversation because 
that slows things down. It does take time. I love the thought of just the simple act of sitting down, having a provider sit down because it does. It communicates. I have time. I'm not trying to just walk back out the door. Right. And I think also like all of the things that actually would have the most change are free. It's not a policy. Right. It's, It's not a policy. It doesn't require data. It doesn't require more research. It doesn't require more committees, more conversations. Like they're literally free. We don't need no money. No money is needed to actually have the most impact on our systems as they are right now. I think you should like run for some political office with that. It's your platform. I am am not for politics. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, and I do wonder too, is if we ask the question, because I'm thinking about, you know, we, we come in, we get your weight, your blood pressure, as you mentioned. And I'm wondering if the question might be, you know, congratulations and what are your biggest concerns about your pregnancy and what what do you need the most from me or how can I support you? What concerns, questions do you have so that we can make this a healthy pregnancy for you? Yes, I love that. I love that so much, Leah, for a couple of real specific reasons. One, that empowers the person who's going through the experience, right? It centers them as a member of their care team. And it's like, how can I support you in the best possible outcome? Not here are the things we're going to do to you a big difference between those two. And it also opens up conversation, right? It gets people thinking in a really targeted way because we we talked about this a little bit, like we live in a very information rich society, right? That can be a blessing and a curse. And so you want to do whatever you can to develop a level of trust that if they're experiencing something that feels off or they have a question or concern that they're going to reach out to you as the provider instead of going to Dr. Google. More people go to Dr. Google because it's more comfortable. You want them to become more comfortable with you than going to the computer, right? Right. And we're a long ways off from that right now, unfortunately. Well, and I can think of the other thing I could imagine saying, Generally, when somebody comes in for their first visit, we have a whole bunch of stuff that we need to get done. You know, we check your urine, we do some blood work, X, Y, and Z. We want to talk about nutrition in that. But before we get into that, where do you want to start or what can I do um, to help you with this first? And then we can do all that other stuff. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Again, Those- you're everybody's still going to get what they need, right? You're still going to get the clinical things, the clinical pieces that you need for charting, Right. It's just a slightly different way. And does it take more time? Maybe, but not usually in in all honesty. It's a restructuring of the visit. And so it leads with the humanity first and the clinical second, but the outcome is still the same. Well, and I think the experience is totally different. I think that trust piece, and I think the thing that's hard for us is One, you feel challenged when somebody asks you a question that can be challenging, like, what, don't you trust me? Or somebody pushes back. But I think if you have that trust relationship, it might not feel like they're mad at me or they don't trust me. They don't believe me, but it may be more. And there are some conversations that are just, you know, the vaccination conversation is, I mean, it makes my blood pressure go up just thinking about it because it's so hard sometimes. It's so hard and it's really hard right now. But again, the tell me more, you know, and there are going to be some people that are just, it's just not going to happen. They're just not going to go there. And I think you just have to give it up. I know one, one doctor was talking about motivational interviewing. He just said, you can open up the question, is this somewhere you want to go? And if they say no, you're done. You don't, you know, if somebody's smoking and you say, 
are you interested in in quitting? And they say, nope, then don't spend a lot of your time there. <laughs> you know, It's a waste of energy at that point, right? And I, like, we all have finite amount, amounts of energy to give to any person or any situation. And so let me use my energy in the best way possible. If you just told me no, I'm not going to waste my energy on that. We're going to find someplace else that I can invest that as a resource into your situation. I also think, you know... <laughs> Being able to receive no, no is a complete sentence. It doesn't need any other qualifiers or additional information or, but what if no is a complete sentence in and of itself and being able to accept that and respect it, even when we don't understand it is very difficult. That is a skill that has to be cultivated and developed and really leaned into. It's not easy. Like I'm the first person to say that it's very difficult sometimes to receive that, but it also can have a really profound impact on the relationship. Again, if you're the person, like if somebody tells you no, and you're just like, okay, cool. If you want to talk about that at a different time, please let me know. Right. Balls back in their court. And that can, that's like a, a ding moment. Like, wait, did they actually just like listen to what I said and okay. I don't have to go any farther? All right, cool. That's another trust building situation. Right. Well, I think we are in a big no situation in our country right now. Who does yes. it feel good? It doesn't yes. feel good. But well, I guess um, in closing, I just wanted to ask kind of one, you know, opportunity speaking with our audience of, you know, pediatric clinicians and, you know, and also therapists, teachers, parents, whomever is out there listening. And if there's a takeaway as a woman of color, what would you want us to say or think about when we're caring for you, particularly when you're pregnant or have just had a baby? Oh man, this is always the like, what does this all come down to? I think the most important thing is I'm going to pull something back out that I, I definitely said earlier in our conversation and that's believe us, right? Just believe us, believe the things that we're saying even when, not even if, but even when you don't see it, you don't understand it, uh, you can't make sense of it. It's okay. It's not for you to figure out, but you can believe what's being presented to you. I, the number of stories that continue to come out from high profile people, professional athletes, actors, politicians who have had near-death experiences in our maternal care system in the United States is awful and also revealing because if it's happening to them and it's happening to everybody. And so it should not take a high profile situation for the situation to be believed, period. So when you hear the stories, when you see the things and, you know, and sometimes it can be just a clinical thing. Like, I know that you're not worried about my blood pressure, but I am worried about my blood pressure. Let's talk about that, right? Do the next right thing. Like, and don't, don't dismiss me. Don't dismiss me. Absolutely. And just and see me. I was yeah. just going to say that was just, uh, I swear yes. you're, you're thinking my <laughs> thoughts. I was just, just going to say, you know, me. believe yes. me, see me, don't yep. dismiss me. Yes, absolutely. That, that's, that's our tagline. <laughs> there we go. Right. It just fell, fell right in our laps, but that's, that's what it is. And again, I feel like it boils down to something so simple, but it's not, it's not easy to do that and to do it with consistency, right? It can't be a one-off. It has to become who you are as a provider that you really do work to see every single person on an, like as the individual that they are. You really listen to them and that most importantly you do, you just believe them. Well, and that you're, 
that you're interested in me. You care that then it boils down to you care about me. You do. You care about me. You all care of the, about yeah. me. You combine all of that and you, and not even just you care about me, you genuinely care about me. You are genuinely invested in me and mm-hmm. my interest and my well being. There are a lot of steps that get to that. And as a person of color, being able to believe that about a provider. I am a person who has fired many doctors over the years because I'm like, we are not on the same team. You are on team. I don't know what, and we need to be about team me right now. And that's hard. It's really, really hard to do that, especially if you're a Medicaid recipient, like, you know, it feels like I don't have options. I don't have choices. And a lot of times you're absolutely right. You don't, but sometimes choosing to go the route of, I don't know what my choices are versus sticking with someone that, you know, is not acting in your best interest because they're not seeing you. They're not hearing you. They're not believing you. They don't value your well-being. Like sometimes it is the better choice to say no. Um, again, that's a complete sentence, right? Did I drive that point home? <laughs> like, no. The answer is no to this situation. I'm done with this situation. I need to figure out something different. It can be a very hard choice to make. I get that. Um, and sometimes it is the better choice, unfortunately. Well, thank you. Your wisdom is so awesome. I mean, I like I said, there are just so many key points. I could talk to you for another hour here. <laughs> I mean, this is just such rich stuff. And it's, you know, it for me, it's the part of medicine that's the fun part. You know, it's the it's the figuring out, it's the, you know, coming to the answers or solution, not solutions necessarily, but options. Yeah. But doing it with the patient who you look forward to seeing and they look forward to seeing you. I mean, it's just it it just boils down to the relationship. I there's just that's the ultimate. That's it. <laughs> It shouldn't be that hard. It just shouldn't be that hard. Yeah. I want to I mean, feel excited to go see my provider and I want them to be like, oh, I saw you on my schedule today and I'm so glad that you're here, right? That would be amazing yeah. in literally every specialty that ever was. Like I, if we get to that place, I'll be like, okay, I can hang up my hat. I think the work is done here. I love that. I love yes. that. Boy, that would be an easy, th- and I know those moments, those patients I just got to go to a wedding shower of a patient of mine and I, it was just so cool. To, I was so excited to get invited. I was like, oh, this sure. is so amazing. I, when you said that, I'm like, how cool is that? That you were like at that level of doing life with them that they're like, I want Dr. Leah here, right? That's really cool. Very, very cool. Well, and we have so many opportunities to be involved in these very intimate parts of people's lives. And yeah. I think we have to kind of hold that with respect and value because, you know, it is a, it is a great privilege. It, it truly is. And, and is. I think we have to convey to patients that I am humbled and grateful that I can be part of your life and that you are, you know, seeking me for help and I'm here to help you. That's my job. <laughs> so, yeah, Absolutely. Well, keep doing the work that you're doing. It's amazing. I, there was a whole bunch of other stuff on my list I wanted to ask you about it, but it's for another day. <laughs> it is for another day. This is beautiful. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Leah. Oh, well, thank you. And take care and be well. Thank you. You as well. A huge thank you to Erica for her candor and her powerful ideas and suggestions and honesty. Some of what she said is hard to hear because I think as clinicians, We really do feel like we're doing our best, but the reality is for a lot of patients, and particularly those of color, we may be missing the mark. It's not intentional, 
but we have to see it and we have to be willing to change it. So here are my takeaways. Number one, a doula translates to a woman who serves. And in the birthing space, they provide non-clinical social emotional support through pregnancy, postpartum, and loss. And honestly, after talking to Erica, I wish that I had had her at my bedside when I was delivering. Number two, when questioning the system, we have to think about who does the system serve? Erica said, the system isn't broken. It serves those that it was designed for, those who are in power. But we need to flip the model so that the system serves the patient. Number three, people over policy. This means no arbitrary hoop jumping and that we need to see people for who they are and become unstuck from blanket policies. Number four, elevate asking why. Erica is a big questioner, but things won't change unless we start asking, why do we keep doing it that way? Number five, assumptions and judgments are sometimes just easier to make. You don't have to work hard to understand the other person or see them if you just make an assumption. The problem is we, we miss seeing who they are. Instead, get curious. Ask, tell me more. Number six, the real experience starts not just at the front desk, but on the phone. And we talked about what the experience of a woman of color might be who's pregnant. And Erica said, you know, if she has Medicaid insurance, her experience is different right from the start. Number seven, many women of color express that they don't feel like we care about them or their baby. When I heard this, my first reaction is, what do you mean? We try so hard. But if that's the experience, we have to hear it and we have to try and understand why that is the case and what can we do about it. Number eight, if Erica could change the system, first of all, she said she'd like to throw out the whole thing, but then said, you know, maybe there's just some things that we could change, things that would serve the patient, like smaller patient loads, more time. I think we would all like that too. Number nine, many of the things we can do to change the experience of BIPOC patients, that is Black, Indigenous, and people of color, are free. Sit down. Ask the patient how they are, how they really are. Ask the patient what they need. What are your concerns? And don't offer just cookie cutter processes. See the person. I mean, that's what we all want, right? When you go to the doctor, you want them to know who you are, to ask about your family, to really care about you as a person. Number 10, not seeing color is racist, period. Number 11, no is a complete sentence. If someone says no, your line of inquiry may be over. Accept it and move on. I think this is a hard one, and we talked a little bit about what that feels like when you're on the receiving end, when someone just doesn't want to talk about something. We often get defensive, frustrated, and sometimes we just have to stop, accept, and move on. Number 12, incremental change is happening. Be part of the change. And number 13, for our patients, we need to believe them, to see them, and to not dismiss them. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that this was helpful to you. I know I just wanted to sit down with a cup of coffee and talk to Erica for like another couple of hours. She was so delightful and smart and insightful and really 
challenge some of the thoughts that I have. And I appreciate that. I hope you have a great day. Thank you for all the work you do on behalf of children. And take good care of yourself. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.